Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is a podcast where my wife and I argue over horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar. So maybe you never quite learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So tonight we are continuing our the end of the world as we know it theme, which I swear to God just feels more and more real the longer this month goes on. Hopefully by the time that you are listening to this... Trump will be out of office, and we can all stop worry about him having nuclear codes. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is certainly keeping me up at night leading up to Wednesday. Who would sleep anymore? We don't even know anymore. Pandemic, white supremacy, <laughs> running amok, terrorists at the Capitol. Uh, just, yeah, what a great time, right? Um, 2021, already off to an amazing start. So... Uh, so anyway, so hopefully <laughs> hopefully things will look like they are improving by the time you're listening to this. But if not, hey, we have a perfect episode to talk about for the end of the world, which is on the film 10 Cloverfield Lane, which came out in 2016. You look like you have something you want to say. <laughs> it's all about preparedness today. Yes, it is. It's all about <laughs> all about apocalypse preparedness on Killer Horror Critic today. Uh, so, so we are going to be talking about Ten Cloverfield Lane. But before we get into that, we have our usual spoiler-free stuff. So, as far as releases go this week, um, there's actually a few pretty interesting ones. So, first up is La Casa, uh, and these will all be on VOD by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but first up is La Casa, which is a, a Chilean film, I believe, but it is uh, a shot in real-time horror film about this cop who was sent into this uh, supposedly haunted house where there's been strange figures sighted, and he's sent in there to kind of investigate and find out what's going on. And it, it only runs about, I think, a little over 60 minutes, something like that. Uh, and, and it really does play in just real time. You're just following this cop inside and going around the house. And, you know, it, in terms of story, it's very simple. It's not going to blow anybody away in, in that realm. You know, I, <laughs> I just watched this a couple nights ago. I barely remember anything about the plot of it because <laughs> uh, there really isn't any. But if you're into those films that are super atmospheric and sort of feel like you're walking through a haunted house, you know, La Casa does that very well. It has great atmosphere. There are some legitimately chilling scares in it uh, and some great imagery. So I do recommend checking it out at least once. I don't think it's a film that you're going to revisit very often, if ever, but it is one that I recommend. Uh, this was, And if you're curious, you can read uh, our review on KillerHorrorCritic.com written by Mark Gonzalez, who you can find on Twitter at SkidMarksGuns. <laughs> and that is... Skid Marks, G-O-N-Z, and Mark is a friend of mine in real life. I swear to God, he's more <laughs> professional than his Twitter handle would suggest. Uh, but, <laughs> but you can read his review there. 
another one coming out is 10 Minutes to Midnight, and this stars Caroline Williams, who you all probably know as Stretch from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, amongst many other roles. Uh, and this is also going to be on VOD by the time listening to this. Our reviewer, Amy Lou Ahava, wrote the review on KillerHorrorCritic.com. You can follow Amy Lou at Amy Lou Ahava on Twitter, and Ahava is A-H-A-V-A. But 10 Minutes to Midnight is basically about Caroline Williams playing this uh, radio DJ who get or radio host, whatever, who gets bitten by a bat, and then it's kind of like through the course of the night, her becoming a vampire, and... Uh, I saying more than that I feel like spoils it but that sounds awesome it's it's actually a really good film you know admittedly I didn't really expect much when I first was checking it out um but it's actually really well done and both Amy Lou and I seem to agree that it's legitimately one of Caroline Williams's best performances you know and and I would even argue that it's maybe better than Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 in her performance now not the movie itself and Caroline is great in that film. The reason that I think both Amy and Lou and I are saying that is that this film allows Caroline Williams to really go through a, a whole range of emotions. You know, it really gets to show off like her range as an actress because this is actually a much more in-depth personal movie than it might at first sound. Um, so you really get to kind of get that range from her with this. But But it's a really good film. Definitely recommend checking that out as well. And lastly is Psycho Goreman, yeah! <laughs> which uh, which both Chris and I have seen. It's absolutely incredible. You'll be able to find my review on this on KillerHorrorCritic.com uh, by the time you're listening to this. But Psycho Goreman is basically about this little girl and her brother who accidentally dig up this uh, ancient gem that controls this ancient evil super being from the universe. <laughs> Uh, who has been left here by his captors to never be found again. And they find this gem and discover that the gem can control him, and he's basically like this ultra bad guy villain who's all-powerful, and it's it's just this wild horror comedy with all sorts of great creature effects and gore. It definitely lives up to the title of the film. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. It, I, I love I, this movie so much. It's it's so great. I, I've seen it multiple times uh, in the last few days, and it just it just is entertaining each time. You know, it's one that I can definitely see myself uh, <laughs> just revisiting over and over again over the next my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so that of those three, that's definitely the one that if you have to pick one for the weekend. Psycho Gorman. Yes. Watch Psycho Gorman. It's it's the perfect movie too for this week, you know, and I think we're all on edge. <laughs> and and this film is just so wild and entertaining that it's kind of like the sort of lift me up that I think the horror genre needs more of lately. Yeah. You know, I, I really enjoy all the uh deeply personal introspective horror that we've been seeing. But, you know, there's still room for movies like this that are just out there to have a good time and yep. make you laugh and just be wild with gory. We, we just need, be fun. Just be fun. We need more stuff like that, you know? All right, so those are our releases for the week. So on Twitter at Killer From Space, we also like to do a poll, getting your views on the film that we're talking about for the week. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, and never seen it, where do you think the audience falls on 10 Cloverfield Lane? I want to say it's between love it and it's fine. I'm going to hedge my bets and say it's fine. I don't know. I haven't been good at answering this question lately. Uh, no, see, I actually got this one. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so love it is thirty eight point one percent. It's fine. Got forty one point five percent. Don't like it is two point five percent, and never seen it is seventeen point eight. 
So this one also kind of falls where I think it would. I, you know, I'm surprised that it's fine overtook it because I I do think that this is such a well crafted movie. Yeah. Um, like to me, it's just um a masterclass in tension building. <laughs> I feel uh, like it's a really great film and I really like it, but it doesn't have that like special something that makes it like that cult classic. Yeah, that puts well, you know what? Saying great and it's fine does not mix together, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, we, there are reasons that I can understand why uh, some would say it's fine, which we're going to get into as we go through this. But uh, so as far as some comments go for the film, and again, these are all from Twitter. Uh, at the Kazoo Hero, and Kazoo is K-A-Z-O-O, just simply says John Goodman deserved an Oscar for this. <laughs> he fucking did. Like, the Oscars are the biggest load of shit ever for the fact that they never acknowledge horror. They and are. And John Goodman's performance in this, like, is so phenomenal and so well done. He's such a great villain in this that, like, fuck you, Oscars. Yeah. You jerks. <laughs> I mean, Goodman's gotten gypped a lot uh, throughout his career. You know, he's had lots of roles that deserve to be nominated that weren't. And this is another one that I don't believe was even nominated, if I remember right. But no, he absolutely deserved an Oscar for this. You know, actually, uh, back in 2016, I think, when this movie came out, uh, I was I was cheerleading for that. You know, yeah. I was like, please, somebody nominate John Goodman. You know, that every year it feels like there's always that one performance that you just know is going to get gypped at the Oscars because it's the horror genre, yep. but you know it deserves it. And that year for me, it was John Goodman. I, I thought that because, you know, if, if you grew up at the time that I did in the 90s, like watching Roseanne, you know, and you see John Goodman <laughs> in that, it's, you know, you just, actors get so pigeonholed into roles that they're famous for yeah. that I feel like Goodman got pigeonholed into that role of just being like this, Oh, fun-loving, goofy dad, right? Yeah, this, that's what I knew him for. Right, and and he does a lot of comedy, of course. Um, but then you start to see his more serious work, and you're like, holy shit, John Goodman is actually a phenomenal actor. He's got range. And and in Ten Cloverfield Lane, you know, he does such a great job of flip-flopping between I don't trust you at all <laughs> to maybe you are telling the truth and I kind of trust you and maybe you're sort of endearing. Oh, but no, nope. I don't trust you. Oh, but maybe I do. You know, it just, the film does such a great job of uh, of letting that character work and go back and forth with it and God and Goodman just brings the role to life uh, in such a way that at times you you want to trust him, at other times you're terrified of him, you yeah. know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think he absolutely deserved an Oscar for this. So uh, thank you, Kazoo Hero, for the comment. Really appreciate it. Uh, next up is at beernut1, and it's just the number one, not spelled out. Uh, it says, 10 Cloverfield Lane is awesome and had great acting and a slow ratcheting up of tension of essentially what feels like a slow burn play. Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about this film. It's such a like enclosed space, but it does a good job of building tension. It'll build tension up and then it gives you a moment where it kind of releases you and you can kind of like relax and question what you're watching and then the tension just builds right back up again. It, this movie is fantastic for that. Yeah, so I mean, like I said, I think this is a masterclass in tension and and it does feel like a play. You know, it's one of those, uh, I haven't even said what the plot of 10 Cloverfield Lane is yet. It's one of those contained uh, thrillers that that really is working off of the actors and not the set pieces i guess you could say yeah you know this isn't the type of film where it's all about the 
effects and the monsters or if there are monsters i'm not saying there are and, and whatever you know but in this it's all about the actors you know it's it's, it's similar right it's similar to maybe films like rope which are very contained and all about just the performances you know um building the thrills and and tension and uh for those that have not seen 10 chlorfield lane it is about uh this woman played by mary elizabeth winstead who is running from her relationship or leaving whoever she's with and ends up in a car accident, wakes up and finds herself in this bunker uh, built by John Goodman, who tells her that there's been an invasion, the air outside is not unbreathable, and, and there's one other guy with them, and it's basically her trying to figure out... Have I been kidnapped yeah. or are they telling the truth? You yeah. know, and it's so all, all the tension just kind of plays off of like from her point of view of what's going on. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Seth, for the comment. Really appreciate it. Totally agree. Uh, and last up is at M Sawzall and Sawzall is S-A-W-Z-A-L-L. And they say it's pretty good. Goodman's great. But the ending is completely botched. <laughs> I, you know, the ending is... Don't spoil it. <laughs> no, not trying to spoil it. I I agree that the ending is potentially a point of contention just because of how good everything else is. The way that they kind of end the movie does feel a little haphazard. I still like bits of it, though. So, mm. like, the, the ending doesn't kill it for me. Yeah. Uh, so we will absolutely be talking about the ending because uh, there's, there's a lot to discuss there. <laughs> And I can't spoil it here, so I will just say I agree with as well. You know, there there are issues with the ending. Uh, a lot of them, not really the filmmakers' faults. Yeah. <laughs> um. So just trying to spoil. It's there are issues with it. I I do feel like it's an ending that maybe doesn't fit the overall film. You know, at the time that I first saw it, it, the ending did affect it a bit for me because you're because you're watching what Ten Cloverfield Lane is meant to be, yep. and then it's what the ending is, and it, it, you know the two just they they make it work. It's just not as fluid as you would like, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, thank you for M Sozzle for the comment. Really appreciate it. Uh, last little bit of spoiler-free content here before we spoil this movie for you. Uh, we like to do a tagline versus the film, just kind of get our thoughts on the tagline and the overall movie. So uh, the tagline for 10 Cloverfield Lane was, Monsters come in many forms. <laughs> uh, so what do you think of the tagline, and what do you think of 10 Cloverfield Lane overall? Look, it's the perfect tagline for a post-apocalyptic film. Because that's really what's at the heart of a lot of post-apocalyptic films is, you know, are the monsters the creatures or are the monsters of the humans? Mm. You know, and this one's really delving into people or monsters. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think it's a really, like, apt tagline for that reason. Yeah, it does. It does what the films we've already talked about this month do. You know, like, Night of the Common and Hell Comes the Frogtown is that in both of those movies, there are creatures or mutants or whatever but ultimately, human beings are kind of the worst creature, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so and so this one, you know, Tenkler for the Lane really plays into that idea of the m more monstrous side of humanity. Um, and it does it really, really well. And so, so no, I, I like the tagline. I think it fits. Uh, but what do you think about 
the film overall? No, I I really like this film. For me, with horror, I'm kind of on two sides of things. On the one side, I like any movie that gives me really good gore. And on the other side, like I want my characters to be really well-written and well-performed. And that's mm. what we get in this film. You know, it's about the tension and it's about like you find yourself in these survivor situations and you don't know how much you can trust the people you're with, how much you should trust. And John Goodman just does such a great job of doing a nuanced villain who is very human. He's Mm. not one dimensional. And that's what I love about all of our characters. Like they're just such great characters to watch in this situation. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean... You know, for me, it's I, I, I just really love movies like this in general. You know, these are wit versus wit movies, right? Like, I, I love these contained movies that pit a select number of people together. And then it's all about just the trust and distrust and people kind of using their wits against one another. Um, you know, because to me, to me, that's always one of the most fascinating parts about horror films or sci-fi or anything really is just the psychology of human beings and how we treat each other in certain situations. And, and we're gonna have a lot to talk about that with, (laughs) with, you know, the world we live in now, uh, in comparison to this movie. But, you know, one thing I'll just say before we get into it, for those who don't know, is that, uh, you know, 10 Clearfield Lane was originally a much different movie. It was, uh, originally conceived as a film called the seller, which had nothing to do with Cloverfield whatsoever. And then the company Bad Robot picked it up and, you know, ended up rewriting it into a Cloverfield film. But, you know, this, it's not the first to do something like this. I mean, there there have been bunker films before yeah. uh, that fit into this genre, you know. Some of them include uh, The Hole, The Divide, uh, Day of the Dead was kind of George Romero's bunker film, yeah. even though it's not quite like this. It's, you know, it's a little they still more open. it got a bunker. It is, but it's more open of a space, you know, whereas these other films are dealing with really tight spaces. But, you know, it's just a really interesting genre for all the reasons that uh, Chris just listed as well, and that, you know, the, these movies are all about the tension. They They really don't focus on, you know, the outside elements as much. They take the idea of the apocalypse and boil it down into this tiny little setting you know so like usually we see movies like this and they're all about what's happening in the world or the city or whatever and in a film like 10 Clearfield Lane it's really just about how is this personally affecting this select group of people that really have no idea what's going on which is kind of like how we'd all be in the situation right yeah if you don't have a tv or radio telling you what's happening you only know what you can see, so... <laughs> I have thoughts on that later. Okay, well, so, anyway, we're going to get into spoiler territory now after the break, so if you haven't seen it, go and check out 10 Cloverfield Lane. Otherwise, we will see you in a second to spoil the crap out of this film. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic, please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. Alright, and we're back here talking about the 2016 film 10 Clearfield Lane, which... Apparently, you know, new year, new me. I'm totally off my game today, so I also forgot who the filmmakers are. So, uh, so this film was directed by Dan Trackenberg, uh, who's worked on some Black Mirror episodes. And it was written by Josh Campbell and Matthew Stuckin, uh, who worked on a film called Horizon Line together. 
Uh, and then I, I believe, and then Damien Chazel came in to do some rewrites. And, you know, he wrote a script uh, for a film called Grand Piano with Elijah Wood, uh, which I have seen. I actually read it when I was an intern doing script coverage. And I got to say, you know, I don't remember if Grand Piano itself is really a great film. I remember mm-hmm. it being okay. Uh, but the script is fantastic. So yeah. if you've never seen Grand Piano, check that out. But anyway, so, okay, spoiler territory now. Going to yep. spoil 10 Cloverfield Lane. If you haven't <laughs> seen it, go watch it now. Otherwise, we're going to ruin it for you. So... <laughs> We're going to ruin it in many ways for you. So so many ways. Uh, so we always like to start off with just kind of talking about the characters. So, you know, with 10 Clorfield Lane, really not a lot of characters to discuss here. You know, we have Howard, played by John Goodman. Michelle, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, who in horror terms, you can also see in Final Destination 3. And I believe she was in Birds of Prey as well. Yes. She's Huntress <laughs> and I love her. Yeah. And then there's also uh, Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr. So... Of this cast, who do you want to talk about? I, I think we know who I'm going to talk about. I have to talk about Michelle. Um, of course. Of course. Because, look, I'm going to love a character like Michelle. She's awesome. She's badass. Anytime you give me a super badass lady who is very quick thinking and problem solving, I can't help but love them. Like, our first... We have that whole intro with Michelle where she's, it's completely silent. There's just music playing where we're watching as she's packing up her life and leaving, you know, her fiance. And our first real moments with Michelle that we spend time with her is when she's in the bunker. Mm. And John Goodman has come in for the first time and has given her, like, the medication um, and kind of told her what happened, but not really. And the first thing this bitch does is she takes the crutch, she sharpens it into a point and prepares to attack, realizes that that's going to take too long, so she starts a fucking fire to, like, lure him in. And that's our intro to Michelle, is she is this fighter who, you know isn't necessarily going to just believe what she's being told. She wants to know and figure things out for herself. And, you know, she learns. Like, she watches everything that's happening in this bunker, and she uses it to aid her escape. Like, we were watching the other day, and we get to that end scene, and it's like everything in the film has been a fucking Chekhov's gun. Every mm. part has, that has been set up gets used right. because Michelle's been using that the entire time. Well, not even just items, too, but shots. You know, like um, there's a shot when she's first going through the vents to reset the uh, air modifier or whatever. Air purifier. Air purifier, uh, where she's going through the vents to reset that, and she looks down through... Uh, through the vent at John Goodman beneath her. And mm-hmm. that's basically a setup for later in the film when she looks down through there and he's trying to get her. Yep. You know, so so no, 10 Clearfield Lane, it's it's really well directed. I mean, it goes through all kinds of stuff like that. But as far as uh, her character, no, yeah, she's very resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, you immediately are drawn to her because, you know, there's all these questions that come up with her character of what is she running from? Mm-hmm. Why is she running? Uh, who is she really, you know? And that's right. and that's the fun thing about this movie, too, is that you just really don't know anything about these people before they're thrown into the situation together. Yeah. And, I, and I love movies like that that just pick up right with the situation that they're in mm-hmm. and and don't really, you know, worry about building them beforehand because then we get to see kind of who they are come out in these intense situations. Yeah, so. and we get really nice bonding moments. Like, the 
uh, the moment that she has with Emmett where they're both sharing their regrets. You know, Emmett's regret of not getting out of town, of missing that bus that could have taken him to a new life. Mm. And Michelle's regret of, you know, not helping the little girl with the abusive dad in the hardware store. I would have to say that, like, that's my only bit of, like, contention with Michelle's characterization is that it feels like to get a female character who's prepared, they kind of always have to come from abusive home. Because, mm. like, we get that with Split. That happens with our main character in that. We get that with Your Next, um, our lead character. She wasn't necessarily in an abusive home, but she was in a survivalist home. And it's my only thing that, like, when I feel like we get these super survivalist girls, it always seems like they have to have gone through some trauma in that scene. Well, well, not even just trauma, but it's like I told you with Night of the Comet. You know, it's, it's, there's always, it, it always seems to come from a male influence, right? Yeah. Like, like, uh, like in Michelle's case, you know, she's clearly had, um, a lot of abusive men in her life, and that's, mm-hmm. and that's helped prepare her for situations and for dealing with people like Howard. Yeah, and, and she knows yeah. exactly how to bait him. Right, and and in Night of the Comet, you know, is a similar thing there of, um, you know, these two girls that the only reason they know anything is because their dad was military and whatever, you know. And, yeah, and, and it's just, you know, I I agree that it's it's not often that we see men in a similar situation. You know, like usually men seem to just know no, or, yeah. or learned it on their own. Like like in Howard's case, you know, Howard is completely prepared all because he wanted to be prepared right like there's well, no he was in the navy well right <laughs> well right yes but but it, it doesn't come from trauma right it yeah come, you know, it comes just... from his own self-desire right so so no i i see we're going with that uh you know as far as you want to talk about it's howard and it's because you know howard is just such an interesting character and <laughs> you know it's funny because you look at this film when it came out in 2016 and this was right before Trump was elected. Right. And it's so interesting now to watch a character like Howard in the context of knowing the last few years and especially what happened at the Capitol recently. And, you know, when you, when you used to see characters like Howard, you would think, Oh, what a what a minority of people, you know, like this. <laughs> what a like, wacky duck! Like it used to be gen, it used to be generally accepted that a character like Howard is, I, as you said, a <laughs> wacky duck. Not the phrase I would use, but 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 you know, we used to look at characters like that, and the majority of people, I think, could look at a character like Howard and say, "What a nut!" Right? Yeah. You know, and now it seems like <laughs> after Trumpism, so much of that kind of conspiracy theorist, anti-everything government person has just come to the front and center. And it's like, oh, there are way <laughs> more Howards in the world. They exist. Or, or in this country than I ever realized, you know. And to me, it's like a new new way of looking at the film is it's not just, for me, it's not just, man, imagine being in this setting with, with a guy like Howard. It's like, man, this, this movie is imagine being trapped in a bunker in the post-apocalypse with a Trump supporter, you know? Yeah. And it's like... The one thing I will say is I'm pretty sure Howard would wear a mask. Howard probably would wear a mask. Yep. However, I don't know. You know, if if Trump if Trump told him it was all the conspiracy of the Democrats to mind control him or whatever the fuck Republicans have been saying, 
um, then maybe he wouldn't. You know, Ho- Howard seems to buy he he buys into whatever conspiracy theory seems to fit most. But the interesting thing about Howard is that you know he he actually is right about a lot of things, and, that, yeah. and that's the weird thing. That's the weird thing about watching this film is Howard is uh, is presented to us as the crazy guy. But the crazy guy is right, you know. So, yeah. so it's it, and it's funny because I feel like early on Michelle's one flaw in in at least developing the relationship with both of these guys is that she immediately seems to think of them as just dumb rednecks, right? Yeah. And and for just cause, whatever. <laughs> but but she, I think she immediately thinks of them that way, and. Yet ultimately, it turns out they were right. So I don't know. There's just like some weird dynamics kind of going on with that. I will but. say with Howard, I do love the fact that as far as conspiracy goes, he hundred percent believes in aliens. But a zombie apocalypse, nah, that can't happen. Well, there's a reason for that though, because um, could you actually have a reason for that? Well, yeah, because Howard knows. <laughs> oh, about the aliens? Yeah, I mean, so here, you know, there's so much. <laughs> This is something I love about this film is this film does not spoon feed you anything. No. Like you really have to watch this film with like analytical eyes to like <laughs> really begin to understand some of it. And the thing that I get with Howard is Howard is crazy but not in the way that you think Howard's crazy. Howard is crazy in the sense that, you know, what we ultimately learn his intentions are with Michelle, that's insane. Like, you know, how Howard is this man who Seems to have not kidnapped her for sexual reasons. I hope, <laughs> but you know, uh, but, I'm but, keeping to that. <laughs> but but you know, he he's kidnapped her to to basically be his grown up daughter, right? Yeah. Um, and he cannot refer to her as a woman. You know, like one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the film is when they're playing uh whatever game. I I can't. The name is slipping me. But <laughs> I don't even know what that game's called. Uh, but they're you know they're playing a game and and. Emmett's trying to, you know, get him to guess the title of the movie, and he gets little, and then he says, Michelle is a, and Howard can only say girl, and then finally princess, you know? <laughs> girl, and, child, little princess. Right, like, he cannot think of the term woman, so he he's projecting his daughter onto Michelle and only sees her as that. That's the crazy side of Howard. Yep. Ironically, the not crazy side of Howard is the alien conspiracy <laughs> and being prepared. You know, and, and I at first you think that well, Howard must be, you know, just one of those typical nut jobs who thinks that the post apocalypse is coming, and you know they've got like hundreds of guns in their basement, and you know whatever. And, and we've always looked at those people and been like, "You're fucking nuts," you know. Yep. Now it's a different story, but <laughs> but in Howard's case, what's interesting is that I think Howard actually knows about the aliens coming, and the reason is. Because Howard, it's very specifically mentioned that Howard worked with satellites. Yeah. And he has a very specific theory that Emmett mentions about space worms. We never hear Howard talk about the space worms, but guess what? The alien in the end? Kind of space worm. Kind of a space worm. So my theory behind Howard, in that sense at least, is that I think Howard actually did have an encounter. Because we, we know that Howard lost his job. We know that he no longer works there. Um, we know that Howard's been talking about this stuff for a long time. And what it seems to me is, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that 
Howard either stumbled on something while working on satellites, or maybe he was even abducted and doesn't remember it and just has like vague memories or something. Um, of but, being probed. Of being whatever. You I'm know, sorry, but, I can't <laughs> not make that joke. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure worm aliens can find plenty of ways to probe him, right? <laughs> But but to me, I watch this and I think, you know, I would almost guarantee that something happened to Howard involving aliens that made him want to be prepared like this. And it's so interesting when they say, you know, when they're playing that game of, you know, what did you want to or what do you wish you would have done in the apocalypse or whatever? Mm -hmm. And everyone has an answer except for Howard, because Howard's answer is, I did what I wanted. I was prepared. (laughs) And then I was, you know, (laughs) and it's just... So, so I don't know. It, it, there, there's something to that, I think. Yeah. Well, and, like, speaking of, because that's from that really, like, tense first, like, dinner scene that they have, which I think is the beauty of this film, is this very enclosed, tense atmosphere that we're doing. Um. So, with this movie, like, what do you think it means to have, like, a post-apocalyptic film that's so intimate and so contained and not dealing with the outside world pretty much at all? I think it makes it more human for us, you know, like, and, and it's so, again, you know, it, I gotta tell y'all living in a post pandemic or or living, I gotta tell y'all living in a pandemic world now, right. And and having lived through that and still living through it, it's, it's really made me look at so many films in a different light. You know, I, I find every other film I watch now, I'm looking at it in reflection of a pandemic. Yeah. And and watching Time Cloverfield Lane, you there's just so much there that stands out that didn't stand out before, right? So this idea of isolation, mm-hmm. you know, I think that most of us could say, seeing Time Cloverfield Lane for the first time, that we didn't relate to that element of isolation as much as we do now (laughs) yeah it's our world now you know because what's interesting is uh, beforehand and and why i like movies like this beforehand you could relate to it in the sense of being isolated within yourself you know because that's that's a theme that's going on here with all three of these characters is that they have all boxed themselves in in one way or another you know michelle has boxed herself in in a sense of you know it seems like not going for what's best for her but instead kind of sticking with what feels normal and unfortunately in her case normal is being with abusive men it seems you know her father was abusive you get the sense that her ex ben was probably abusive um and she just happens to have found herself in that life that she can't get away from right yeah and instead of, you know, finding the courage to 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 change her life for the mm-hmm. better and get out of that kind of stuff, instead she beats herself up and runs away from her problems, as she mentions, right? Yeah. Uh, in Emmett's case, you know, Emmett literally confines himself to, as he says, a 40-mile radius because yeah. he gets basically scared of the world, right? He's scared to to leave his bubble and, and go out and experience the world. And in Howard's case, it's not necessarily fear that has driven him to what he is but he has boxed himself in as well you know he <laughs> he doesn't want to let go of this family that's left him it, like it, he can't let go of that exactly so all these people are living in their boxes and i think that that that's a sense that we all probably could have related to before the pandemic and just the ways that we isolate ourselves right yeah but now when you watch this there's this added element of 
oh yeah, I I get <laughs> how <laughs> awful that is and how tense that is to have three people just sitting in this like one room space for the most part and just be trapped there, right? Because that yeah, well, even on top of that, like not not being allowed to leave, not being allowed to see any bit of the outside world. Mm. Like that's what I think is really smart about this film is I feel like a lot of other times when people are contained into small spaces, they still can kind of see the outside world. They can see bits of the outside world or it's like a zombie film. They're still having to deal with encounters. And so the tension is just ramping up and ramping up because people want to get out. But with with Cloverfield, it's this weird thing where they can't see any any of the outside world. So they get content with what their life is. Mm. And then they get reminded that this is not the world. And I feel like that's the most relatable thing right now is that like, you know, we're all going through these phases of we get used to being under lockdown in quarantine. And then we get reminded of something in the outside world. And like Michelle, we're like, all right, so we're busting out. We're busting out. Fuck it. I'm making <laughs> I'm making a quarantine suit out of a rubber well, ducky shower curtain. And I'm out. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like all three of them, too, represent different stages of how all of us have probably handled the pandemic, right? Yeah. You know, because Michelle is in this stage of, no, there's no way I can't go outside. That's ridiculous. Like, you know, Michelle refuses to believe at first that they cannot leave this bunker, right? Yeah. And I, and I imagine that's how a lot of us felt at first, right? Like, I, I refuse to accept that I now am stuck here. You know, nobody wanted to believe that that was the case. And then, of course, Michelle learns that she can't, and so she mm. starts to settle into the next stage. Emmett is in that next stage of acceptance, where it's like, you know, Emmett's just trying to deal with it as we go, of like, well, this is life now, but hopefully it will be something better. You know, Emmett has this great line of saying... Uh, we're alive and that's got to mean something. It's got to. I think that's another thing that we hold on to, you know, in this life of like, we're all alive right now. We're all dealing with this. It has to mean something. It has to, It. you know, I have to believe that there is going to be more to life after this, that this is going to end and that, you know, there will be better things on the horizon. We just have to get through this. You know, Emmett's kind of in that stage. And then Howard's in the stage of like, this is just life now. This is my life you know? now. <laughs> I have and, everything I want. I have my ice cream. Right. And, and that's a stage that I think, you know, some of us have probably hit. A lot of us are maybe on the verge of that. Um, not yeah. necessarily accepting it as in this is life forever, but just accepting of like, well, this is what it is now, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've weirdly hit kind of, I'm in between Howard and Emmett. I think that's where all of us are. Yeah. Because yeah. like for me, like I have to go and work at the shop. And so I feel like I have Howard moments when I have customers come in sometimes who are like, yeah, I was just like out at the beach or I went and like saw my parents in Arizona. I'm like, you dumb fuck. Stop <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I think I'm in more Howard mode than you because, you know, unlike Chris who has somewhere to go. I, I've been in this goddamn apartment for most of this. <laughs> Matt has been hunkered down. Yeah, I, I've been in the same fucking space for most of this year, and I gotta tell you, it's not great. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so as far as like what these films do for a post Bollywood setting, you know, they they humanize it. They really, you know, they I think they make you reflect on what life is and what you want it to be because you know a lot of a lot of other post apocalypse films. They they still give us kind of a worldview of what's happening. You know, our characters aren't necessarily isolated. 
They're, you know, they're not necessarily trapped. They're more just kind of taking the world as it goes. You know, Night of the Comet's one of those. Yep. Hell Comes to Frogtown is one of those. You know, characters just kind of dealing with their situation and but still getting to kind of live their life a little bit, you know? Yeah. And 10 Cloverfield Lane, it, it it's that in-between period where it's it's the acceptance of, you know, the, the hard acceptance of this new world. And it humanizes it by just boiling it down to these couple characters trapped in one space without any big, you know, events going on. There's no attacks of monsters or anything like that. It's just the three of them figuring each other out and learning the trust and frankly learning that trust in the post-apocalypse is really not a thing that human beings are that capable of. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I, I forget who has the line, but one of them says that kindness and generosity are antiqui- are antiquated. Kindness and generosity are antiquated. Why do an- I feel an- like I'm saying that wrong? Antiquated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> customs and... You know, I think that that's the harsh reality of a world like what we're living right now or, or what you would be living in 10 Clorfield Lane is that, you know, once once the system is broken down or changed or whatever, human beings just suddenly say, fuck it, I'm going to treat people however I want, you know? Yeah. And and you start to learn people's true colors. And we've seen that with the pandemic, you know? Half of us are, are saying, I'll wear a mask, I'll protect my neighbors, I'll do what's right. Yep. And the other half is saying... Fuck you, America. <laughs> Free speech somehow is related to Yo, masks. You know? I'm going to go hang out with my friends. Right, I'm going to go party and have fucking mansion parties in L.A., you know, the worst place in the pandemic right now. So, you know, it just it really brings to light, like, all of those best and worst traits yeah. of us as human beings. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, all that being said, I mean, does this film make you kind of rethink how you would handle the apocalypse? Look, I'm just going to say this. You do not want to get trapped with me if there's apocalypse because I'm going to fuck shit up. <laughs> I know that because I yep. live with you during this. <laughs> yes. Like, honestly, watching this film, you know, we've tried really hard with with all this stuff to be prepared and watching, like, looking at Howard's bunker. He is so, his bunker is so much nicer than our bunker. Because we don't have a bunker. <laughs> he has a working oven. <laughs> we currently do not have a working oven. Yeah, we don't have a working oven right now because it broke and we don't want people coming into the apartment to fix it. (laughs) You know, it's an interesting thing for me because, like, you know, watching this kind of realizes where exactly I would fit in probably in the apocalypse. Because, like, even before everything that was going on, um, before 10 10 Cloverfield Lane and watching that, I weirdly had gotten obsessed with having, like, what I call the ultimate mommy purse which means that my purse is fully stocked with anything that I feel like I could need in a day-to-day setting. So there's band-aids, there's scissors, there's a sewing kit, there's a lighter. I think I have some dice and a knife. I have some Nerf darts. Mm. Like so I had been kind of moving towards like trying to be prepared for small things, but this movie makes me realize like how little my preparedness really helps, which is nothing. Um, yeah, no, your band-aids yeah. don't mean much. No, I will say, though, in Apocalypse, like, look, I'm going to be one of two things. Because, like, I will absolutely be a character like Michelle who's willing to, like, fuck it, try to put together, like, a contamination suit, a hazmat suit with a shower curtain and go out and try to, like, find the things that my group needs. And either I'm going to come back with a windfall of Twinkies or I'm going to bring a mutated bear back to our stronghold. There's there's no middle ground. And, and you will no longer be welcome at my stronghold, <laughs> I'll tell you that. So, <laughs> no, I think this film does make you reflect on, 
again, you know, I think when you first watch it, again, it's, you know, something that maybe is like a casual sort of thought uh, that you maybe think about for a second and then you're like, ah, whatever. But now watching Tenkler Field Lane, it really does make you think, like, do I need to be more prepared than I am? Like, are, are those people that I've, that I've called nut jobs for <laughs> my entire life, like, are they on to something? You know, not the Trump supporting, obviously. No. That's, that's not a good part of the personality. But, you know, this idea of, of being prepared in case it all collapses, like, maybe there is something to think about there. Because, I mean, for God's sakes, I remember when the pan- And I'm sorry, this is like an episode about the pandemic, but- It's very relatable to what but, we're living through. Right, but I mean, you know, it's like, I remember when the pandemic was- first kind of coming to light here in america and you know people flipped out and like bought out stores with uh, of toilet paper right like that was the one thing you couldn't find is fucking toilet paper (laughs) people 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 were so worried about their goddamn buttholes being clean (laughs) (laughs) that (laughs) that nobody wants a butthole caked in shit Nobody does, but I would rather have food to make said shit uh, than I would toilet paper to clean it up, right? So, you know, but but that it just speaks to me to like how humans just the modern human just really does not understand survivalism, right? Like we really don't get it. And I think that this pandemic proved it, right? Because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all the canned food being bought out. I mean, obviously that was tough to find at first, but it wasn't that. It was toilet paper. Yeah. Toilet paper was the main thing, you know? So so I feel like right off the bat, we're unprepared for that. And Goodman just has, I think, the most chilling line in the entire film where he says something like, you people, and he goes off about how, you know, all of us have our... Uh, police and alarm systems in our house and blah, 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 security dogs, whatever. And he's like, but what do you do when those alarms go off? And and that's such a good point. Because look around the world, look around your world today, or even t- take it smaller. Look at your house. Your alarm goes off in your house. That's fine. The alarm goes off. Somebody still yeah. broke in. What do you do? You know, what do you do like that? That's with the, our plastic lightsaber. But that but that's the main point of, of this is that, you know, we don't think that far. Yeah. We think as far as the alarm going off and that and, and we have this like misguided concept of that's all we need. That'll protect us. That's fine. But what it, but what do you do when the alarm does go off or or better yet? What do you do when the alarm doesn't go off because the power's cut or something like that? Right. Mm-hmm. So and that's another thing is like we we're also technology base that what the fuck happens to all of us if the power just goes out for a few days i mean you suddenly have no idea what to do you know so it's just like watching a film like this it really does make you think you know have (laughs) should i have spent part of my life just in case preparing for this because i'm not saying we're in you know i'm not saying we're all about to be in bunkers or something like that. I hope not. Oh God, I hope not. Um, but but the question still stands: of what if? Like, what if yeah. something catastrophic happened, and we all suddenly had to learn to cope with that? Like, what would we do? The Howards of the world would be fine, <laughs> and we would be fucked. <laughs> so. I ha- I have to say one thing about Howard though: like his bunker is really nice, but my only beefs with it is, as far as I can tell, there's no hazmat suit. Which for me, like, leans towards like what Howard's ultimate goal with this was, was which was basically to bunker down and live out the rest of his days in the bunker with whatever girl he snatched. Well, he doesn't need a hazmat suit though, because 
if you if you think of what the bunker really is, the bunker. Yeah. I mean, he explains this whole thing. You know, he says the bunker is uh, to survive fallout, like yeah. nuclear fallout. So he has enough food to last in the bunker until he can safely leave the bunker. But there's no way to safely leave the bunker without a hazmat suit and a way to measure it. Also, he no, doesn't seem to have a radio. No, but you're misunderstanding. Like, he he doesn't need... I mean, look, should he have a hazmat suit? For yeah. sure. But, but he doesn't need it, ultimately, because the idea is that, you know, you figure nuclear fallout, dangerous atmosphere for maybe a year or two... And then you're good, you know, and then it's safer to go out. That's the hope, but you still, you got to be protected. He's got no protection. I'm going to, I'm going to give some leeway there, okay, because (laughs) that, that sort of thing does not last for decades, right? So I, I get why, but, but you're right. He should have it. Uh, so flaw on Howard's there, on Howard's part there. Okay. So we've spent a lot of time talking about Howard and Michelle and we haven't talked about Emmett at all. Do you think that with Emmett, he helped Howard build this place? He knew the first girl that Howard took. Like, do you think he had anything to do with, like, Howard killing girls? Do you think Howard killed multiple girls? Uh, well, okay, so I don't think Howard killed multiple girls, although I don't know. <laughs> you know, there, there's so much to Howard that you just don't really know. <laughs> you know, I'm mixed on this. I'm mixed on this thought because I, I believe ultimately Emmett probably didn't know. You know, like, I think ultimately Emmett's just, uh, he's just, I, I think he's just there to provide uh, another voice <laughs> for yeah. Michelle to interact with, you know, like a calmer voice. But in terms of why why I think it's possible Emmett might have known about Brittany, you know, this girl that Howard's kidnapped uh, to replace his daughter Megan, comes down to two things. One is, yes, he helped build the bunker. You have to wonder, you know, how much he knew about the bunker and why Howard wanted the bunker. He did know Brittany. He seems to be a little off-put when Michelle brings it to him. There are lots of moments when Michelle's talking about it where Emmett doesn't really have... He doesn't vocalize his reaction. It's more through a look. Yeah. You know, and, and those looks can be multiple things. They can be shock from going along with Michelle and realizing that Howard's a bad man Mm -hmm. or they can be a different kind of shock of realizing that Michelle's onto it yeah and that they can't pretend anymore you know and but the thing that the thing that stands out most to me though and it can be explained away I'm not gonna say it can't but the thing that stands out most to me though is there is a picture with Howard with his arm around Brittany and I just have to ask who took that picture? Yup. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing for me of, you know, it seems like Emmett was the only one helping Howard build this thing. I don't think that Emmett necessarily helped in any way, but I think he was complicit. I think he had thoughts about, like, what was going on, what Howard was actually doing, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I honestly think he knows about the help message. That's yeah. like on the thing. I think that he's seen that before and has suspicions about like what's going on. But oh no no no! I look. I I think mm-hmm. I think you're on to the right thing. But I I I think that that's wrong. Like mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that how I don't think that Emmett saw the help message and was like ah whatever. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense. The the thing that I, I when you look at this, yes, you have to ask who took that picture. You know? Yeah. Because it's a picture 
with you know they're not selfie taking it no now granted it could be a camera where you put a timer on it and that's yeah. how it took it that that's totally plausible i'm not saying it can't be the case but you know there are questions that you have to start asking yourself like if emmett was involved with it right mm-hmm. uh him and howard right most likely have two very different approaches to why they're kidnapping this teenage girl right yeah howard's got his with wanting to make her his daughter mm-hmm. emmett could have a very different idea you know so granted this is a lot of stretching i'm not yeah. i'm not gonna say that it's not like i get that but i'm just i'm just you know playing devil's advocate here of there are just questions of like how much do we really know about emmett mm-hmm. emmett emmett's there already yep you know and you start you have to start asking yourself questions of like well, when did Emmett get there? You know, did did Emmett, like, had John Goodman already kidnapped? Yeah, because he says, Emmett says that he fought his way in um, mm. to get in. And, you know, Howard says that he brought Michelle and some of her stuff in, but wasn't able to grab the alcohol that's mm. sitting in his in his car still. So it's a weird timeline of, like, when did everything happen exactly? And honestly, for me, the big tell is um you know when they're going to that first dinner and Emmett goes to catch Michelle because she's tripped and mm. Howard immediately freaks out and says don't touch her um that for me like makes me kind of think that like eh, maybe Emmett knew about the first girl and maybe Emmett and the first girl Brittany got a little bit too close and that's why Brittany is dead now it, it's very possible I mean you know you get the sense that Howard and Emmett know each other really well and we know that from you know Emmett saying that he helped build the shelter but but there seems to be a deeper understanding between the two of them you know yep. and and a deeper conflict where where you can sort of sense that their different ideals, you know, are clashing, and that could be a result of, like, whatever happened with Brittany, right? Yeah. So, because, again, you know, it, I mean, look, it, it, I I do, I, I, I lean more towards that this is just how we're doing this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like to talk about this stuff, and I think it's possible that Emmett had something to do with it. Yeah, I think <laughs> Emmett's big regret, the one that, isn't talked about not his not getting away is the fact that he couldn't help Brittany and that's Mm. why he really like is trying to step up and help Michelle and is trying to help get Michelle out oh could be and alternatively if anyone's out there like well why doesn't Emmett just you know attack Michelle like he might have Brittany or whatever he's got a broken arm yeah and they're gonna be in this bunker for a long time he can wait (laughs) he can wait you know I mean no it's it's as simple as that like you know it Typically, people like that are, or people, you know, typically, look, it's not like, it's not like rapists or or, or men like that have a stamp on their forehead that says, I am this, right? Yeah. You know, typically they are kind of more charming Mm -hmm. uh, people that lure others in, right? So, so Emmett just has a lot of those qualities. It's just, it begins to become easier to believe that Emmett could have had something to do with it, but maybe not. I don't know. We got to move on. So... (laughs) Uh, so about that ending, because we have to make sure we talk about this before we go. So the original ending for 10 Cloverfield Lane uh, was much different. You know, I don't remember specifically exactly what happens, but I, if I recall correctly, uh, it really didn't have anything to do with aliens. I don't, I don't think it was revealed that aliens had anything to do with this. I think, I think it mostly, um, that final showdown is mostly between Michelle and Howard. 
and and I think it was left kind of more open ended mm-hmm. for what was going on in the world. And in in the film version that we got, it's very clearly Alien Takeover. Michelle goes through a whole fucking <laughs> sequence of battles, right, in this super intense, action packed ending. Uh, so, what do you think about the ending for this film? And do you think that you would prefer one or the other? You know, I I don't really like the alien ending because it potentially justifies Howard. Like, having that moment where Howard's right about something, I feel like takes away something from the movie because then, you know, it, it validates Howard, which I am not super comfortable with validating a kidnapper. Um, sure. Yeah, that's that's my only thing with it. Um. So it's fun and it's action-packed, but, like, I think that it makes the movie weaker. Having said that, I am weirdly in love with that last five minutes that sounds like the opening to a video game where it's just the voice on the radio being like, if you have combat or medical experience, we need you. People need you. And I'm just like, yeah, video game time. <laughs> Indeed. So, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not a fan of the ending either. So, it, you know, it. I don't know that I'm not a f- I don't know that I'm not a fan because it validates Howard. I mean, and the reason I say that is I, I'm not thinking about in terms of him as a kidnapper, you know, that's, I don't care about that element in this, you know, Mm -hmm. when it relates to the ending, it's more that, you know, cause I, cause to me, there's nothing wrong with the script really toying with the idea of what to believe. Yeah. You know, I I don't mind Howard being right, and I don't mind him being wrong. I think that I think that both work. You know, in one situation, he's extremely manipulative and convincing her that the air outside is bad. That's also not something we haven't seen before. You know, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, him being right in a sense makes it worse because you, or or in a sense, is more effective because you really don't know what to trust about him. You know, yeah, and and you really don't know what to think of Howard, in a sense. But I just think that it interrupts the flow of the film because, to me, you know, you've got this, you've got this really tight knit, enclosed, just isolated movie, and it's one that's all like we've been saying. It's all about tension. It's all about the the performances. You know, it has nothing to do with big set pieces and monsters and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's nothing like that in this movie for the first like three-fourths of it right yeah and then finally in the last 15 minutes you just get the sequence of just non-stop ridiculous action i and i mean ridiculous i mean come on we got mary elizabeth winstead throwing a fucking molotov cocktail into a <laughs> vagina ship right like it's you know and, and and yes vagina ship do not tell me that that ship does not look like the opening of a vagina right like so it's you know it, it's all just like you go from this quaint little thriller to suddenly this over-the-top, just yeah. nonsensical alien invasion movie. And, it, you know, it's it's not that it doesn't work. Like, it's still kind of... They do it well enough that it works. The, the set pieces are fun. It's intense. You know, it's not like it's not well-directed. But it just... It, they feel like two completely different movies. Yeah, it's jarring. And and there's you know there's a bit of dissatisfaction on my end too in the sense that you know I remember when I first watched this and and the bunker blows up and I just had the, I remember having this thought of like God I wish that we would get just one last 
return of John Goodman's character. Yeah. Just one final moment with him and Elizabeth Winstead to just settle the score, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't get that. And and to me, there's just something so displeasing about not seeing Howard's death. Yeah. About <laughs> it, it being off screen. About it being off screen. And and you can only assume that he died. And you really don't know. You know, we, we pretty much get that he died. Yeah. I don't think you can expl- <laughs> you can survive an explosion in a bunker. True, but <laughs> anything can happen in horror films, you know, and maybe he escapes some other route. We don't know. But, yeah. but yes, most likely he's dead. He is dead. It's not most likely, but... You know, there's just something that's not satisfying about that. But it's just, you know, it's like I think I, I think of the movie Rope that I mentioned earlier, which is this great Hitchcock film about these two killers that have put a body in this trunk uh, underneath the table where they're having like a dining room party, right? Or, yeah. or a dinner party. And one character is kind of questioning about where this guest is or something, right? Um, and it's so this film doing this ending, it's almost like if you had the movie Rope and then suddenly like everyone's a vampire in the end, right? You know, it just... <laughs> It just, it, in this case, it's not out of left field because we're talking about a possible invasion. Yeah. And, and I guess you expect it going into the movie being called 10 Cloverfield Lane. But still, the original script for this, I, it's just, I, I, I hate this forced universe building that we see with studios because in this case, Bad Robot took a phenomenal script <laughs> in, in the cellar and then shoehorned it into the Cloverfield universe, you know? Yeah. Here's my thing. I'm not opposed to doing, you know, a horror anthology movie like what Cloverfield is attempting to do because that's what Halloween was originally supposed to do. And I think that that's an interesting concept, but you shouldn't just take a, a script that's not meant to be part of that and shove it into your universe. Right. It's just, you know, it's just... I don't know. It's just, to me, it's disrespectful to the writer, right? Yeah. Like, I remember... I'm getting a little buzzed. So we're going off topic here. <laughs> probably going over time. But, you know, I remember when I pitched uh, this idea to to a studio when I first moved out here. And long story short, I won't get too much into it. But it's basically about uh, a sci-fi setting with... Think about it this way. It's like Chopping Mall with a school, right? So so that, that was kind of my pitch. And... I remember pitching that, and and suddenly, you know, the the studio is trying to convince me of, well, how about instead of doing this really cool sci-fi idea that plays into our technological world that we're living in, uh, what if it's just like a couple of dudes robbing the school? And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, you you are completely misunderstanding yeah. <laughs> the movie that I'm pitching to you. I, it has nothing to do with a couple of guys robbing the school. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, you know? But you see this all the time in studios. Like, writers are just so mistreated, you know? they're. It's like, you know, the, these studios, they think that they can just buy whatever ideas they want and then throw the writer on the street and bring in some other hack, you know, to, to do their thing. And it just... I love 10 Cloverfield Lane, but it's like, I, I would so much rather have had this not be a Cloverfield film. You wanted the <laughs> seller. I wanted the seller. I want to. I want to see the way that this movie was originally intended to be made, and I want to see that movie. I want to see the culmination of what happens with, uh, with Michelle and Howard. I want to see. I want to see what the original intention for the ending was going to be. I don't want to see a giant vagina ship explosion. <laughs> That's not why I'm watching Ten Cloverfield Lane. You know, this super intimate, isolated movie. <laughs> so, uh, but all right, I've ranted too much about that. So that's how I feel about the ending. So we got to start wrapping up. So who's your killer idiot of 10 Cloverfield Lane? 
I don't know. It's tough because I don't feel like anybody's really and makes idiot mistakes. So my only person is is Emmett for like fighting his way into a bunker with you know Howard, who he knows is unstable. Well, I got a better one for you. Okay. It's uh, it's Ben, Michelle's ex, <laughs> for letting that queen get away. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whatever whatever Ben did to mistreat her or, or whatever. We're talking about Mary Elizabeth Winstead here, all right? Yeah. She is a queen. She's how could amazing. You, how could you do that to her, Ben? Fuck you, Ben. <laughs> so fuck you, Ben, you idiot. How, the fact that you let Mary Elizabeth Winstead go, idiot. Idiot. <laughs> uh, what about your killer death of Tanklerfield Lane? I mean, even though we don't see it, it's obviously Howard. Like, is it obviously Howard? I mean, he falls in acid, and then his face is all goopy and melty, and then she almost cuts his hand off just by slamming it against the thing, and then he blows up. I do love Howard's last line as his acidic, melty hand is grabbing her foot, and he's like, stay with me. You know, that's just such well, a fucking it's, great moment. It's so good <laughs> and so terrified. No, so that's great. I, I do put Emmett's death here uh, as my pick. just shot. Pick. Yeah, but it's so shocking. <laughs> you know, that that's the turning point for the movie because that's the moment where, like, why I love that scene and why I love this death is because up until that moment where Howard does that, you started to relax a little bit on Howard. Yeah. You know, you started, to, you started to think, well, maybe he is right about what's going on in the world. And even though they find the earring and there's some weird stuff going on, you know, you can still... This movie's such a conspiracy theorist type movie that you still there's a part of you that still thinks, well, maybe there's an explanation that I don't understand yet, right? Yeah. You know, and so you still think, even though Howard probably is a villain, maybe there's still something that I don't that I don't know. And so the second that he takes out that gun and shoots Emmett. All bets are off at that point. It's like, yeah. nope, Howard is the villain we thought he was all along. And holy shit, now he <laughs> is telling Michelle that this is how it was always meant to be. And and now we get a complete full picture of what's happening here, you know? Yeah, I'm just so, wondering how he fit Emmett in that tiny itty bitty bucket. It's acid. It melts you. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it does melt you, but that doesn't mean that Emmett's mass goes away. It just changes. It melts you. It dissolves. It's like ash. You know, I mean, you burn somebody. No, no, no. You burn somebody alive and and their ashes become ash. You and their still body... have matter left over. I mean, yeah, yeah now it's ashes. Yeah. But... Your, human, your human shape right now that you're in, like all five foot whatever of you, fits into a tiny little urn because yeah, it's burned down the ashes. But with burning, you're burning off all the liquids and stuff like that. But in acid, the liquids are getting incorporated into the acid. So you should have like look, a at, decent at, goo pile. Look, It's a at, tiny bucket. At best, it adds a couple inches to the bucket of fluid, right? Like I'm just I'm just saying it's totally plausible. He's anyway, like a five, six man. Whatever, you focus on weird shit. Um, <laughs> all right, so <laughs> uh, who is your killer MVP of Tankler Fuel Lane? The rubber ducky shower curtain. Because Are you serious <laughs> right now? <laughs> yes. Look, I know that you're going to do John Goodman. Um, I am. <laughs> yeah. So, and I love Michelle, but look, like there's, I did a little bit of, of reading and research, and they worked really hard to pick out the perfect shower curtain. And I love the, how much thought went into which shower curtain they were going to end up making into a hazmat suit and watching Michelle fight fight aliens with a fucking giant happy 
rubber ducky on her chest just makes me weirdly happy. So, yeah, that rubber ducky shower curtain and the hazmat suit that came out of it. Well, that surprised me. When I met Chris, she was uh, building a rubber ducky collection, which has faltered as of the last few years. But <laughs> We didn't have the space for it. So no. no more rubber duckies. But you're a rubber ducky fan. Um, yeah. So mine's obviously John Goodman. Yeah. I, I mean, come on. Like, just just come on. You know, yeah. it's it's John Goodman. I mean, again, the guy should have won an Oscar. He should have at least been nominated. Mm-hmm. And, and and fuck the Academy to all hell for for just ignoring performances like this. You know, <laughs> but he carries this film to me. Like, don't get me wrong. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is great, and I do not want to take away from her character. Uh, John Gallagher Jr. does a great job. Yeah. But John Goodman, I mean, he is the embodiment of the tension of this movie, right? Yeah. Like, again, one of my favorite scenes is the dinner scene where Elizabeth... And I, I, I'm i sorry I didn't get into this in, in earlier in the episode, but, you know, like we were talking about with how Elizabeth Winstead learns to kind of play him in this film, that's so great. Like, she takes these characteristics of having been in these abusive relationships and uses that to her advantage to manipulate Howard. Yeah. You know, and it's something that's so fun to watch with her character is, like, she knows what will drive a man like Howard insane. Mm-hmm. And she's wrong about the reason why at first, because I think that she at first thinks that Howard is interested in her in more of a perverted way. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's assuming that, well, he'll get jealous because I'm touching Emmett. Yeah. So she's a little bit wrong in that, it's really more of a, no, he thinks of you as his daughter kind of thing. Um, but she's still right about how Howard is going to get jealous over another man touching her. And yeah. so, you know, so she does that thing at dinner and just watching Howard go from like calmly eating his food to suddenly smashing his fist on the table and getting up and like forcing her out of her chair and screaming like, what do you think you're doing? Like, it's just <laughs> such a shocking moment that for those of us that, you know, mostly knew Goodman from his more comedic roles... You see that moment, you're like, well, I will never, ever <laughs> fuck with John Goodman again. <laughs> Holy shit, you know? So, so no, he, he deserves an Oscar. He's by far the MVP for me for this. Oh, definitely. Um, I knew you were going to choose him, so I didn't have to. Oh, fair enough. Uh, but all right, so that's going to do it for us on 10 Clorfield Lane. And, you know, there's so much more I would have liked to have gotten to with this movie, but unfortunately, we only get an hour, but this movie just has so much going on it's in so it. Good. <laughs> so So we're going to move into our Patreon content now. We're going to talk about... Uh, a little more of what we think Howard's history is. You know, he's such a mysterious character that we want to kind of get a little bit into where we think he sort of comes from in his past, right? Our headcanons. Sure. And uh, and we'll also talk about where we think the Cloverfield uh, universe should go next. Um, so if you'd like to listen to that, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic for just a dollar a month. You get access to all of our additional bonus content. Uh, we also have bonus episodes, a uh, list that we do every week for new horror releases, uh, voting for episodes and bonus episodes so so again just go to patreon.com slash killer horror critic uh every single penny goes to our writers and supporting us and supporting the podcast so if you can we really appreciate it supporting us there otherwise we're just glad that you're still listening and shout out to our killer members on patreon uh ben scouten michael campbell martin achetta seth vermont and kelsey lynn Thank you so much for all of your support uh, we really can't do this without you so just thank you for all you do for us thank you uh, next week we will be talking about one of my honestly favorite films ever in the mouth of madness, uh, John Carpenter's movie, which just relates so much to what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I actually just wrote a piece about this on killer that you can find there kind of 
reflecting on the capital attack in the context of the film in the mouth of madness so read that there if you'd like um otherwise that's gonna be it for us so i'm matt and i'm chris and have a good night horror fans bye i hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of killer horror critic if you'd like to scream with us some more please subscribe on itunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled, just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans. <laughs> <laughs>